This is Dr. Susan Eyrick, founder and director of Earthfire Institute. We're a wildlife sanctuary um, with a focus on changing how we see and therefore treat nature. My own personal focus is the exquisite, exquisite beauty that's out there for us if we see it and how that ends up healing all of us. I'm having a conversation with Dina Metzger, whose accomplishments are so extensive as a poet, healer, storyteller, novelist, that I urge you to look at her website, which is dinametzger.net. Um, so Dina, I am an admirer. And a couple of the things that I've begun to um, do with Earthfire is focus on the idea of Earthfire as a council of all beings, because we are a nature sanctuary. We live on wild land right next to Grand Teton National Park, and we have bears, wolves, and other animals native. And I simply can't think in any other way other than that all life is participating in one large community. And the whole idea of the animals are calling us to counsel because they have things to teach and because they need our help is a foundational principle for us. And I think the idea came ultimately from you. Well, um, I think it came from them. I think it came from the animals or the elementals or, uh, or the living beings. And that several of us perhaps picked it up that we were like antenna that could understand what they were saying because of course they don't speak in English and or in human languages and so we have to develop a very sensitive way to translate what is being communicated to us. Mm. I remember uh, when um, Joanna Macy first started the circles of uh, Council of All Beings. We happened to be together in, um, in Wisconsin, in Cherry Creek, Wisconsin, at a remarkable theater gathering. And she introduced the Council of All Beings at the same time that I introduced something called personal disarmament. And I was looking at the way we govern ourselves internally and how these are often a reflection of the very systems that we would like to alter in the public world. So we may deal with ourselves um, in totalitarian ways uh, or walk in the world in totalitarian ways, not realizing it, even as we're trying to um, come back or do away with totalitarianism. At any rate, that was in the 80s. And um, it was a, the beginning, I think, for many of us of a way of thinking that was trying to tune in ethical and spiritual ways to the reality of the world. So when I hear you speaking about your relationship with the animals and, and, and with the land, um, 
I, I feel at home and I feel as if you are in a profound alliance that you have heard what they are saying. Um, I find your words so very moving and gratifying. And I think we are in an alliance. And the word alliance means everything. You and I are in alliance in this mm -hmm. moment, no question about it. Mm -hmm. And we are speaking about an alliance with other beings. Mm -hmm. For me, it's very important to underscore that it is the other beings who are acting with agency and that they are coming to us because we have, I was going to say we have lost our way, but I really want to say because we've lost our minds. <laughs> <laughs> we do not know how to live and they are suffering. Yeah. And it reminds me of when the Kogi, who were our indigenous people that live in Colombia and had somehow until about 20 years ago, managed to avoid um, being colonized, had managed to avoid European uh, domination, suddenly looked at the ecosystems uh, where they were living. They happened to live in a mountain that is cone-shaped and has every single ecosystem in, in the world on it. And they looked at it and they saw the snows begin to melt. And they went into deep, deep, deep meditation and they understood, they saw in an, from their inner sight what we were doing. And they came out and, and they, um, there's a book that's called The Elder Brothers um, in which they speak to us who are the younger brothers and saying, you are destroying the world. Well, the animals are doing the same. Huh. And um, some of us can hear them. Yeah. You know, I would like to ask you to repeat some of the principles that you were talking about that are um, fundamental to Earth Fire. Because, you know, in indigenous cultures, they repeat things yeah. <laughs> again and again so that it can enter. And I think the way you opened, so important that I would like whoever's listening to this to hear it again. One fundamental principle is that all life is sacred. And if all life is sacred, what does that mean for how we live? Beautiful. So even, even that, for us to understand really take in, yeah. not to hear the words, that all life is sacred, then how do we live? You and I are so attuned. I, it, it's so thrilling. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Another one is uh, um, showing up for life. Mm -hmm. We need to show up. Mm -hmm. It's not just enough to know that life is sacred. It's not just enough to um, feel it. Then we have to show up. 
and act on, I can't, oh, it's silly to say act on its behalf because we're part of it. Um, right, show, right. Show up on life's behalf. Right. When I, I heard someone the other day saying, we have to help nature. I said, wait a minute. Hmm. Saying nature is out there, something else. And we keep making that division when we talk about nature. And as soon as we make that division, we're not really deeply connecting that it's all of us. And to say that we have to help nature, it's as if we have control. <laughs> and then what follows from that is that we have the right to that control. Mm. And that is so crazy. I love what you said about, you know what? I want to say we lost our minds because I think that's true. We haven't just, lo we've lost our way because we've lost our minds. Right. And uh, we're just lost in God knows what. Some, my own thinking about it sometimes is we got all twisted up in how our brains developed and, and we don't have the cultural institutions to help these incredibly gorgeous, complicated brains that we have function well. We don't have the institutions to do that. So we have this brilliant sort of like powerful like nuclear devices in our brains uncontrolled and un, un, what's the right word? We don't follow beautiful pathways within it. And we don't have institutions to help us set up beautiful pathways within it, beautiful constructive life affirming pathways. We, we get overtaken. Yeah. And and it, I I, I just saw the look in your eye, and um, I saw the I saw the probably because I'm feeling the grief myself, um, the joy of connection and the grief for all the broken places <clears throat> and the harm we do. Sorry, tragedy unnecessary we could live in such beauty you know there are landslides and diseases but fundamentally we could be living in such beauty what a waste you know even when you say landslides we're so focused on our on on how things affect us yeah right so i don't know about the relationship between a landslide the relationship between a landslide and and a mountain. I can't make a judgment about that shedding, except when it's a when it's a slide in the mountains because we have altered the climate, and now it's a flood zone that shouldn't have been, or global warming and the snows melt where we have interfered with a normal process but volcanoes and landslides they're all part of the creative process and so a lot of my work and thinking is to get away from how it affects us or me and not judge the entire magnificence of creation in terms of its relationship to me. I have to tune to it to find out how to live. Mm. Not 
try to organize it to support my life. As you would say, beautiful. <laughs> we are so in tune. <laughs> well, because beauty's at the heart of it. Yeah. When I was in Canyon de Chez, which is very, very sacred land, um, Navajo land, Diné land, um, I looked up at these cliffs um, and they had streaks of blue at the very top from the copper. So there's the red, red stone, white, red, white, and then these blue streaks um, coming down, the blue sky, amazing, um, amazingly beautiful place. And the words that came to me were, this beauty comes from a great heart. And I felt that I was understanding the nature of the divine. Oh. That the essence of the divine is the heart, love. And that is expressed in beauty. Oh. So that's what it means to me when you say everything is sacred. It's sacred and it's beautiful. There isn't a place on earth that has been untouched by human beings that isn't also still beautiful. Every tiny square inch of the earth that we haven't touched yes. is beautiful. And completely full of wonder. No matter what it is, it'd be a single leaf. If you start to look inside a leaf, it's an entire community. The more we look, the more wonder, the more wonder, the more wonder, incredible. And just a tiny bit that we can see and comprehend. That's, what, that's another aspect for me of what's sacred. It's just, we have no idea. Right. Therefore, honor everything. Right. Yeah. Therefore, honor everything. Makes me smile. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear the wind. No. We've got quite a wild wind. For us, um, winter has arrived. So, you know, the wind kind of, well, it comes around the house, right? And it makes its own music as it passes. Feels like such a wonderful presence to accompany. Uh, this conversation because I am hearing an elemental speaking right while we're speaking. We've had a bunch of birds outside speaking. It's the beginning of spring here and the birds are going nuts and you could feel, you can begin to feel the excitement of birth. Mm. Yeah. We have um, Dozens of no, hundreds of ground squirrels here. One year mm -hmm. there were none, and the next year there were two, and the next year there were a hundred. <laughs> and they're incredible creatures. They're sort of related to the prairie dogs, and the prairie dogs that have their own language that, mm -hmm. that people suggest is actually has its own syntax. Anyway, they're incredible beings. And right now, under the ground, they're very, very busy being born. They're going to pop out in a couple of months and the ground will be alive with them and then they're going to disappear a couple of months later. But you could just feel 
everything starting to stir and mix. <laughs> <laughs> Leslie Marmon Silko, who was a, a native, a Native American writer, um, lives with rattlesnakes. And she wrote a very beautiful book called Turquoise Ledge about a, a year that she spent pretty much solitary being with mm -hmm. the land. And she, she lives with these snakes that are under the house or come up through something. Suddenly they're in a fireplace or tries to, I don't know if, I'm not sure of this, that she tries to convince them to be outside. I think she prefers it <laughs> when they're outside <laughs> and not in her kitchen. Um, but when you were talking about the squirrels and the prairie dogs and everything that's going on under the earth, right? It's like looking at the leaf. If you look at at the earth, it's it's full of life. Mm -hmm. And something has happened in our culture that when people see that liveliness, they're afraid of it. Mm. And they, they, they want everything to be inert, not move, not change. Um, so those fears that are put in us, uh, they cause us to to step away from what is lively and to have anxiety about liveliness um, because we can't control it. Sometimes I um, have taught kids who come from the inner city. Mm -hmm. who have never even seen anything. And the reactions are interesting. There are certain number of them who are like immediately attracted and and so enlivened by it so once i was teaching a long time ago for the herald tribune fresh air fund camps and there were kids from harlem who'd never it's sleep like 10 in a bed no sheets nothing just really deprived and we took them for a little walk to a top of a hill in upper new york state at the time and a couple of them said, um, we were on the top of a hill looking out over the beauty and the rolling hills. And they said, I never knew there was anything that beautiful. So if they're open and not terrorized, there's an immediate response. And when some of the uh, city kids, inner city kids who came here and there were some wolves out in the garden, they were just so fascinated and drawn to them in a, in a positive, beautiful way. So, yeah, it's amazing. We had the same experience. And I could say it the same way. Um, a group of kids come from the inner city and we took them for a walk. And they had never been in land like this before. Now they live fearlessly, or at least in knowing how to manage themselves in relationship to what terrorizes 
us and should anyone, the police, the, the helicopters, the sirens, the violence, the guns, that they have learned to walk in that world. But they didn't know the land. And so they had all kinds of trepidation. And we took them for a walk and we took them up on a hill <laughs> and we took them there for sunset, which was really extraordinary. And then they had to walk back in the dark. Um, and they walked back, they started singing, they started doing call and response. Oh. So we could hear, we could hear the music as they came back to, um, to the house and the patio where we were meeting. What was remarkable was that afterwards we sat in council and they started talking about their experience. They started talking about their lives. And they spoke of things that they had never spoken about before. Mm. But council was not a new form to them. But sitting around a fire outside in the dark without sirens, without so many sirens, the stars coming out. It was, it was extraordinary and it was heartbreaking because I could not offer this to them to live. Yeah. They had to return. Yeah. And I don't know how to balance that. Um, there's something to me that, that hurts to bring someone to, to paradise in a sense and say, um, yes, come enjoy, but you can't live here. Um, I can say we have to return everything to this way of living. You have a right to this way of living. You know, E.O. Wilson says that for the earth to survive, we need to return 50% yeah. to the wild. Yeah. And I saw a headline just a few days ago where that apparently was picked up somewhere. I didn't have a chance to read the article. So when... I am alongside these young people in activism. I really want to encourage them also to think about how they might reestablish and live with, with the wild. And of course, their parents and, well, not their parents, but their grandparents, their, their elders, they all knew that. They all knew how to live with the land. They come from that wisdom. In fact, we learn it from them. Um, complex. Yeah, one of the things I was going to discuss with you if we get to it was um, what do we do? I, I built, a, I ran a nature center for a while, and in that nature center, uh, it was on the East Coast. Um, we built a Native American encampment with a brilliant archaeologist who's actually nominated for a MacArthur Award. He was, he was so connected 
to early, I don't want to say man, early humans. And we built a wigwam. We literally went out on the land to buy the, find the stone to make the axe, to strip the trees of the bark to make the wigwam. Everything was completely authentic. People wanted to take shovels to dig drainage ditches. I said, no, you can have to do it with a deer scapula or some other type native tool. Everything was authentic. Uh, to me, that's incredibly important because if you start to take any shortcuts, you're already starting to change the energy of the place. And then I invited, we got a small grant, and I invited fourth graders from... I'm going to interrupt you for a second because this feels so important. And I want to emphasize it because it's a, it's a great mystery. If you dig that ditch with a shovel, it's not the same ditch. Right. It, they look the same. It's not the same. Right. And if you use neat, neat, uh, nails, which I didn't, um, and then cover it up with bark so you can't tell, instead of using cordage that you stripped yourself and made, Yes, I can't explain it. I don't know if I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that. I've never really put a lot of thought into why it's not the same. I just knew it wasn't the same. My instinct said it's not the same and this is the way we have to do it. That's another whole wonderful discussion. How is it not the same? How does it start to get corrupted into something else when you start to take shortcuts or do something that doesn't fit? It's another, another whole thing. But the point is, then please feel free to interrupt me anytime because I'm sure your interruption is always gonna to lead to wonderful places. Well, what I'm thinking about is that the difference between a technology, an inert technology, and something that's created intimately, it changes everything because we have to recognize that every activity exists in a field of consciousness. It's not just the simple linear gesture. And so when you're digging that ditch with the tool that you made from the living earth, the entire history of making that tool is in the ditch. And you're using a living tool on living soil. And everything is about relationship and connection. Yes? Yes. There's something else too, and I have to think about it to put my finger on it. Um, something about the energy of authenticity. What, what I wanted to say then was then I invited these, these uh, students and they came up in buses and they were just so blown away. They just, it was like instant. They, and, so we built the wigwam, and it was a beautiful wigwam. And it, it, we had it lined with, with um, grasses to keep it insulated for the winter, and a little fire pit in the middle, and the, a little fire pit went up through the little hole in the wall. And um, then we had an area for making stone tools, and an area for making pottery, and an area for, for cooking. So it was a, a little encampment. And everything with, had that quality of reality, to, of, of realness to it. And they just responded so vividly and so strongly. So we had a wonderful time. And, we, and then I went back to the school, maybe, I don't know, several, at least several weeks, maybe a few months later. And 
So I went into this school in the middle of Brooklyn, in the middle of the slums, and the kids came streaming out of the classrooms. And they just circled me and were like trying to touch me. And I just, I was just burst into tears because they were so glad to have a reminder of something that was so vivid and real. So many of them had never even touched soil before, only concrete. And the classroom was filled with little bits of, of, of clay, um, examples of pots and stuff. It was just, what made me think of this whole thing, Dina, is your word, heartbreaking. They were just so hungry and so responsive. So the question is, what do we do? What can, what, I don't know, what do we do? What can we contribute to changing this, the trajectory we're on into something more positive? That's not well said. In this moment, what I'm feeling is that we have to make amends to these children because this is their heritage and rural American people destroyed it and destroyed them. Now both the land and their lives are destroyed. So it's a kind of, it's a double, it's a double path walking in such a way as to walk in right relationship to the land and walk in right relationship to the history and the culture and the traditions that speak of right relationship. How do we do that? Let me rephrase that. That is what your work is, isn't it? That's what your life work is. When, when I was working in Liberia and we were working, uh, doing a ground, uh, grassroots peace building work or um, documenting grassroots peace building work. And I felt I had to go against the the gratitude that I often felt that I had come to mm -hmm. Liberia. And that my task was to pay respect. My task was to be the student of their wisdom. Mm -hmm. um, that was the best I could do. I could not be born into another skin or another culture, but I could pay respect. And together we could remember the way it used to be when they knew. Um, when, and, and, and they know now. Um, I, and I had to speak honestly about the grave faults and dangers from my culture and country. I had to take responsibility for that so that we can form a true alliance. 
and I don't know the answer to your questions. <laughs> and I don't think any of us know yet. <laughs> I don't know anything. I don't know. These are profound questions. I have no answer. One of the things that came to mind when you're talking about they were grateful, but that was not the, not the proper interaction. Um, someone told me about this beautiful project where someone will, um, I don't remember what it's called, something like the listening project, where a woman would make a point of simply going down to a city park and sitting next to a homeless person and genuinely listening, just listening. And at first... Grand Peavy. Excuse me? Grand Peavy. Okay, so you know. But the, the whole point was, if you truly listen, people begin to open up. First they think you're weird, and then they begin to open up and this beautiful depth comes out. And I was thinking of that in relationship to what you were saying in Liberia in a slightly different way. If you come to teach them from the Western culture or to give to them or help them, that's not, that's disruptive. It's not quite the right word, but to listen, to hear their depths and wisdom is to help them because so many in the world do feel inferior and have been made to feel inferior. Just by listening, you're already giving them the dignity of their wisdom. And, and so I don't know how to say the sentence without saying them. Yeah. Right? I don't know how we do it, but I, it, it, I just have to say this. Fran Peavy made a practice, a lifelong practice of listening. And she had a sign that she went through Europe with saying, American willing to listen. <laughs> She died a few years ago. It's very thrilling to me to have you know her work. She also spent uh, 20 years um, cleaning the Ganges. Wow. That was her, uh, also part of her life work. One of the things I keep trying to do in the, these conversations I have once a month, um, online conversations, is continually re-emphasizing the power of one person, how much we don't understand our own tremendous potency and power and how can we encourage that and empower people. I just told a story the other night about a woman called Jill Robinson. Do you know her name? She, Writer. No, she saves um, the sun bears from the bile farming. I don't know her. The most beautiful, beautiful story so they do terrible things to the bears. They keep them in what are called crush cages and they attach a, a catheter to the gallbladders and they just let the gallbladder, the vial drip into buckets and then they sell it to Chinese health stores. And these bears are like 20, 30, 35 years in those conditions. And she, one day a reporter just took her down there. She was just this little white woman and, and took her down there to one of the basements. And in the basement, as she was standing there, she felt this gentle touch on her shoulder, and a bear had reached out just to touch her gently on the shoulder. And she was profoundly moved and changed. And from there, 
she started a organization called Animals Asia. And she has now saved 600 bears. This is a little white woman in China. She's now saved 600 bears. She has an organization of over 300 people. She just went to Vietnam where they agreed to, the government agreed to stop the practice of bear farming, bio farming in by 2022. This is one woman who'd been reached out and touched by a bear. So I keep telling these different stories. And I did, I just did a podcast with her. Yeah. It's just the, the power of what one person can do. She wasn't anyone special. And so that to me is one of the areas that I try to, to keep encouraging people to tune into the, your own power to make a change and to find where that is. <laughs> I'm laughing because I can turn the story just a little. Power of one bear paw, one bear, bear that reached out. Yeah. That's a very profound story. Yeah. Everything in it. It has the cruelty and the uh, self-interest of the human species that will inflict such pain on a living being for its own theoretical health and profiting from, from these medicines. I mean, the, everything in the system is corrupt in those interactions. And someone took her. There was a reporter that was bearing witness. I, I think so. So he or she took her, and then this bear reached out. Mm. And that's where we began mm. in this conversation between us, on the intelligence of the animals. So this bear had exquisite understanding of who this woman was, maybe even beyond what she knew for herself, because she could have screamed in terror. Mm -hmm. But something else happened. She could hear what it was saying. And part of my work is to have us understand that our thinking is very human-centric and that, it, that the mind, our minds have to shift so that we can even see that the natural world is intelligent mm -hmm. and now has had to develop agency in regard to us. Mm -hmm. what, an what incredible skills. And at another time, we can talk about it. That's been my experience with the elephants. I want to. <laughs> <laughs> so do I. Good, we'll do it then. Okay. There's one other thing I wanted to add about it. What she did was instead of criticize the Chinese and the culture, mm -hmm. she tried to understand and work with, and she got 
all kinds of, of, of um, stores to say they wouldn't do it anymore. She brought people in. Um, there was one old couple who had bears um, and they were getting too old for it and they gave her the bears and then they came to visit the bears and they just broke into tears when they saw how happy they were. So she didn't do it as a negative or an angry or us against them or how bad they are. She did it from a place of love, compassion and understanding and it was just so powerful. Maybe that's what the bear taught her. Maybe, because she said the touch was gentle. This is lovely, Dina, and I'm absolutely wanting to talk about elephants very soon. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We will do it. Great pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. It was a wonderful conversation. Look forward to more soon.